Mo Shah spent most of his adult life in New York City. He actually moved to Hong Kong a few years ago to further his career in finance. But when he arrived, he found that Hong Kong was an open canvas for developing his art. There's an energy in Asia, and we're in a moment of such, you know, unprecedented growth here that usually, and if you look historically, creative、um, developments. Happen in parallel with these kind of moments, so I just wanted to attach myself to that. It's definitely not New York, it's not Berlin, it's not London. But for the work I do,、uh, which is very, very much based in photography and、uh, you know, especially on-site photography,、um, Asia lends itself well to、um, you know different locations that are quite striking. So tell me more about that train of thought. When you say that there is this tremendous energy here,、mm-hmm. and we're on the verge of Something. What thing? Tell me what you mean by that. Sure. I mean, if you look at the last twenty to thirty years, I guess it's、um, we we've had a very Western history. If you look at all of the major developments in in the world, if you look at、uh, the economic growth that has、uh, transpired in the last I don't know fifty to you know the post World War Two era. Uh, if you look at most of the achievements in the arts, in cinema, in music, it's basically coming out of you know it's it's coming out of a Western domicile. But now I think dynamics are shifting, and it starts with the economics, and that's generally how it's worked through history.、Um, the fastest growing and largest economy. Is no longer the United States now. It's China. Some of the you know the markets and the, the political regimes are opening up in Asia slowly. Whereby you know just a decade or two ago they were you know you you just couldn't get to them. And with that comes a creative you know explosion. You, you're seeing it in Cambodia. You're seeing it to a certain degree in Myanmar.、Uh, you're certainly seeing it in Vietnam. You're seeing it in Indonesia, and You know, I'm not saying that、uh, one needs to ride the crest. I think that's a very organic phenomenon. But it's certainly nice to be here at that at that moment. And why is it that with、uh, an economic boom, if you if you want to call it that, there is a burst of creativity naturally?、Uh, because I think that you have individuals of with of means, right? Suddenly, you have a middle class. You have、um, you have a Whether you have an income gap or not, there are people who have, you know, a certain amount of money that are now interested in things that they may not have had access to before. And it doesn't always have to be what's what's available in the West. You want your own identity. You want to explore it. And to the extent that there are people who are working in that space or who can provide something a little different, well, there's something special there then. So I'm.、Uh, You know, I'm I'm very supportive of that. In my own, you know, hometown of、uh, of Lahore in Pakistan and in Karachi, I mean, I've seen the art scene just、uh, go from you know something that's very insular to now you know being enjoyed in the MoMA and in the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And there's no reason why that can't extend to every city in the world and you know where everyone has a platform now. Last several years, there has been this discussion about the emergence of art in Asia—South Asian art, Chinese、mm-hmm. art. You know, like you say, 
I've heard many people say that, well, that's all good and well, but the market for this kind of art actually only exists with other Asian buyers. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Um, I have no idea about what transactions are taking place, and that's you know kind of a part of this you know the, this this business I want to stay away from. I do this purely out of passion, but I think it's largely irrelevant if whether or not you know if if art is being purchased either in you know in Asia or outside of Asia. Now, you have to be careful with this stuff. There's a commercialization of art and an exploitation of artists that can also take place, right? And that's a delicate line. It's a bit of a balance. So if you look at what's happening in Cambodia post-Pol Pot, had a population that was completely devastated. One in four uh, had had been, you know, executed or died um, um, because of famine and, and hardship. And... You know, I think there's a there's a part of that population that's that's just dealing with this through the arts, specifically in a town called Badambang, uh, which was the kind of poetry and artistic capital of of Cambodia, and that's it was the intellect intellectual capital of Cambodia too. So they they went through a lot of devastation. Now there's an art scene that's that's slowly growing there organically, and it's beautiful. And what you don't want is for a bunch of people, you know or international galleries coming in and just picking this stuff up and, uh, you know, representing it in a way that may be too soon or just a little exploitive in the sense that I can make money off this now, right? And this is a, this is a five-minute fad. So if it's not, if, if, Western, if Western buyers aren't the, the buyers of, in size of this work, that's absolutely fine. It should just go to people who understand it and who are, you know, have some connection with it. And Mo, what do you mean by too soon? How do you define what you said too soon, meaning the Western buyers, the Western galleries come in and perhaps pick up these pieces of art from places like Cambodia too soon? Yeah, because in the sense that it's it's sort of uh, the, the risk is, I'm not saying this is happening, the risk is that it becomes a little faddish, right? Like, okay... I know this great you know, artist in Cambodia, his parents passed away. I'm, I'm, I keep referring to Cambodia for some weird reason, but this applies anywhere. And uh, you know, he's doing this wonderful work. But rather than cashing in on it now, which is what I think a lot of um, people may you know, be uh, compelled to do, because it is at the end of the day a business, right? The, that side of it. Um, I think there's a... I think there's a process where an artist should mature, should be allowed to develop, should gain a voice. And if it is indeed art that pertains to their community, their country, let it flourish there and then naturally, you know, elevate to you know, other other audiences. But it should happen in a way where it's it's very natural and it's not just a bunch of people coming up to pick up the pieces of you know what's there now. So okay, it's it's a delicate balance. I'm uh, and I'm I plead ignorance to you know who's selling what and to whom. So let's talk specifically about your art. Right, you're a photographer. Uh, yes. So tell me about your photography. 
Right. So I'm a photographer and photography is the foundation of my artwork. But I guess um, technically I'd be a visual artist because there's a lot of other stuff going on in my work outside of photography. What is the difference? Well, there are a lot of digital overlays. It's mixed media. So I don't I I don't I certainly don't restrict myself to um, to photography. Um, But that that would be the core element, I guess, in in a lot of the works. so what I would do, I guess, my my work is photographic-based, but it's pop art in a way, and it's heavily influenced by, by cinema, right? So I've studied uh, film for, for many years. It's a passion of mine. Um, and what I, what I ultimately want to do are create moments uh, which are almost like films within a photograph, right? So a lot of the works you see deal with, uh, you know, Themes that range from, you know, isolation to, I I don't know, cross-cultural tensions. But it's done in a very lush cinematic way. And it can be a little dark at times. It can be very poppy at times. But it's, um, yeah, I would say that's that's the core work. And the other thing is that I, I really don't have any rules when I do my work. So what you see today... Maybe yeah, link to something you'll see a year from now, but yeah, the, the, it may have gone in a completely different direction. Um, I think the other thing that differentiates my work a bit uh, would be the fact that I do have a load of um, historical imagery um, that's just buried in each work. Uh, sometimes it's easy to find. Sometimes it's um, sometimes it's very obscure. But I do like to blend, you know, certain traditions, uh, whether it's costumes, whether it's uh, you know political events uh, from from different periods, whether it's you know the early twentieth century or Russian Revolution with something that's happening today, like street art, and see how that tension plays out. Sometimes it can create you know, very, very, very interesting results. Sometimes it's just odd, uh, but but fascinating to the eye. Uh, and sometimes it's just complete garbage. So it's, um, you know, it's, there's a lot going on in the mix. then went on to describe his art, specifically a piece called Coma Nation that was exhibited recently at the Asia Contemporary Art Show. And that's an interesting piece because it does deal specifically with the phenomenon uh, from the 1940s, but it certainly affects us today as well. So in this piece, this is a radio show, so I know you can't see it, but you have um, a very, very, very uh, special to me uh, silent movie actress from from the the twenties, uh, career ended in the late thirties, uh, named Louise Brooks, and that's you know maybe one of the only times I'll I'll mention who who's in my work if if there is a you know some archival or kind of pop reference, uh, but that would be the most obvious too. So it's Louise Brooks, and it's done in a way where she's um, she's mirrored a few times, and I've I've kind of painted these four heads of Louise Brooks that are attached. 
And each one is a little different. One has, um, you know, kind of an American flag um, slightly traced over her um, her contour. Um, the other, in the other, she's blindfolded. Uh, in one, she's just, you know, Louise Brooks in all her glory. And the other one is, there's a darkening process that I did that makes her look a little sinister. But it is a, go- I mean, she is gorgeous, so I didn't have to do much. So that there's that as as the base image overlaid on that are um are basically war maps from from uh World War 2 uh specifically uh Japanese war maps and you know you can see little hints of fighter planes actual aerial photography t- done during World War 2 and right in the heart of this piece is a uh, poster that that was hanging in every street probably in San Francisco back in the 1940s um, asking or commanding all people of Japanese ancestry to report to internment camps. So these are U.S. citizens who you know were uh, were living in, I guess, mostly California, uh, Japanese in origin, but you know U.S. citizens nonetheless, who were actually rounded up and hoarded into these these camps, which were, uh, you know, by all uh, means, just just a concentration camp. And what this piece really does, so you can see there are few things buried around in this piece, but when it when it surfaces, what it's what it, what I'm trying to talk about is um, the fact that Hollywood, and uh, I do think that the 40s and the 30s were a very very you know beautiful moment for for cinema, uh, specifically in the United States and Germany, just aesthetically, uh, what they did back then was something else, but. Um, Hollywood was used as a tool to blind, and there is one image of Louise Brooks uh, blinded, to blind the mass populace, right, into doing things or acquiescing to things they ordinarily wouldn't be comfortable with, such as the Japanese internment camp, right? I mean, this was something that was happening. There was very little protest against it, but everyone was quite aware but at the same time, the country was marching to war uh, to liberate people. So it's uh, this tension fascinates me, and it plays out in many different pieces, but maybe not so explicitly as in this one. I became a little more subtle later on. Some other pieces, I've basically written a film script that I have people act out, and uh, that's used at the, as a foundation of a shoot. So then there's a series called Night's Witness uh, about a being who actually comes to our uh, world. Um, it's quite a striking figure. Um, but rather than... And she just, you know, it lands in a place, I and mean, it's in the form of a of a woman or an angel, where two people, a child and someone else, are just, um, you know, they happen to be there. But rather than help or assist, they just study it. They study it, die, and it's um, uh, it just goes through. It starts from there, and then you know, there's a rebirth. And we take this figure to, you know, very, very different places in in a series of works called um, Restoration of Night's Witness. You know, that that's another extreme where there's nothing going on but a uh, but a narrative or a film script that I wrote that was 
acted out and then, you know, used as a foundation of artwork. Mo, this is fascinating. I can't wait to see your work (laughs) to begin with. Can't wait to have you there. (laughs) Why? It's clear, obviously, that film is such a huge inspiration for what you do. Why is that? Uh, I think film was, for many people in my generation, the gateway into the arts. I think film is one of the, uh, you know, it is the ultimate art form, right? It is moving pictures. Uh, film incorporates music, right? Early film only incorporated music. They were silent and they were, they were you know, married with uh, certain uh, musical pieces, which is just beautiful now, if you think about it. And I think it's, um, it's just an expression and an art form that connected with me. And I'm a little film obsessed. So I've, you know, from from the early silence to, you know, any independent film made even like a month ago, I would be I'd be on that. And I uh, I get inspired from films. I I love that medium. I think it's at the end of the day, one of the greatest you know contributions of the 20th century are some of the movies that we have. Um, so, yeah, I as I've, I've been so influenced that it had to then inform my artwork. So there's amalgamation of moving pictures into still photography. I mean, it's, it's quite a unique concept. Yes, and it's not, uh, I would say it's not always easy to pull off, right? So it started with, um, when I was very young, I went to the uh, the Museum of Modern Art when I was living in, in New York. So it's a very cliche story. But I saw um, a series of works by, by Andy Warhol. And I knew who Andy Warhol was. And I, you know, I... I I always thought he was, um, you know, and, and pop art in general was just this wonderful, aesthetic, fun art form, not to be taken too seriously, nonetheless, like, important. So I had a connection with one of the pieces. It was called Orange Car Crash 14 Times. It's just a, it's an image of a car crash taken a few times, uh, reprinted in orange. Uh, it's stunning. Uh, but I felt movement in there. Um, there was a certain movement and um, I just thought to myself, man, I, I I haven't connected with a piece of art before. And maybe it's just, it could have been any piece of art. Maybe it's just that moment, right? But this did it. And I went home and I really tried to do something similar, not copy, but something similar just to see if I could, you know, get some some kind of expression out like that because it was so powerful. It was impactful. And started doing some very early pop art that was based on, you know, Bollywood and the link between uh, classic Bollywood, I guess, and the link between uh, art and commercialization, just standard pop art maneuvers. And then I realized, man, why don't I just, why don't I just use everything I've learned in film and see where this goes? And um, it just kept evolving and evolving. And like the stories became more complex. The messages became a little more subtle. And it's, um, it's become quite, a, you know, it's been, it's been quite a journey. And now I feel really privileged to have created worlds where, you know, the role of women is so much stronger. And, you know, the role of religion is so blurred and it's uh, you can really do anything so i really i mean i think in this latest body of work just created a parallel universe where things are familiar but absolutely not what they what you expect them to be 
A portfolio manager by day, Mo says that he wouldn't be as good of a finance man if he didn't have his art side to work with, and he wouldn't be as good of an artist if he didn't have his job in finance, because he says that his art has a mathematical foundation. I'm a very passionate and unstable person, so I need to be, you know, I I need to. I need to be brought down, you know, to to reality and grounded a little uh, by by satisfying the left and right side of my brain at all times. So I somehow have found this incredible, um, I don't know, it's a, it's an incredible compromise where I can, you know, do this day job, and it's something I'm very comfortable with and I, I enjoy, and then I have all the time in the world to work on uh, my artwork and. I think I I kind of need both. Being in Hong Kong has been really special for Mo. It has allowed him to move on from being a relatively unknown artist in New York and Pakistan to really establishing himself in the Asian art world. Mo's work will be part of a solo show at Fabric Gallery starting at the end of this month. Throughout the last half an hour, you've been listening to interludes from Joy Division, which is one of Mo's favorite musical inspirations. I leave you now with the Beatles' "Hey Jude," something that Mo never tires of listening to, as he continues to work on his art. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Start to make it better. Hey, Jude, don't be afraid. You were made to go out and get her. The minute you let her under your skin.